You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Danny Fingeroth, and you are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello, this is the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is the Amazing Spider-Man, episode 19A. This is covering a period of Spider-Man uh, in 1989. Uh, and I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I'm your Spider-Man co-host, Adam Chapman from the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. Adam, tell me, what are we going to be talking about today? Well, we're, 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 we're starting off in uh, Amazing Spider-Man 311. And then uh, you, know, you can actually remind me exactly how far are we going with this particular this run. We're going up to, what, 318, is it? Uh, 319. 319, that's right. So I have a question actually for you, Curtis, before we get too far into it. I'm okay. just curious. So what were you doing when these, uh, when these issues were first published? <laughs> well, my very first Spider-Man comic is actually uh, one of the Cosmic Adventures issues. So I wasn't doing okay. anything with comics when this when these issues came out <laughs> not nothing okay how about you uh i think i'm similar i think i might have read an issue or two from this period um but it wouldn't wouldn't have been amazing spider-man i'm just thinking like the year itself i was i think i read an issue of, of superman from this period that was put in a stocking um but in terms of spider-man like yeah i was not reading it i would have been about six years old so uh you know i, I honestly i don't even know if i would give some of these issues to a six-year-old yeah i mean there is some mature content and uh <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the thing that pops into my mind is an incredibly sexy picture of MJ in one of these issues. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, this was this was an interesting time. Uh, we've covered a lot of these the, the the volumes before this already on the podcast. That's and right. You can definitely see that there is a maturing of just comics in general at this time, and we're not just talking about the the content, but the artwork as well. It's going through an evolution. And Todd McFarlane is right at the forefront of this evolution. And uh, we so the last volume was Venom, right? It was the first appearance of Venom. That's right. And in that one, we can see Todd McFarlane starting to push the boundaries of kind of how to tell comics and how to to be more bombastic in your storytelling and splash pages and flashiness and all this kind of stuff. And I feel like he kind of kicks it up into high gear in this volume. I think that's very correct. I mean, yeah, I I really don't even know how to feel about his art, to be honest, because like I know he's he's Todd McFarland. He did things with Spider Man's Anatomy. Yeah, he has some really iconic poses and iconic moments. But like, I don't know if he's a great Spider Man artist, even though he's so legendary. Like, it's I I find it difficult. Like, I read a volume like this where again, like Michelini really is taking a back seat. Like, and to his credit, he does kind of say, and this is what he does with Larson too, and later on with Bagley, he really does write to a, a, an artist strengths in a way that a lot of writers don't um but i do think it, it, it makes it hard to understand him as a writer because it changes so wildly based on who the artist is mm-hmm. and he's tailoring it to that artist but it, it does make it harder to know who he is as a writer on spider-man if it's so dictated by the art i think that's a good thing because if he were trying to to uh 
how do I want to say it? If he's if, if he's trying to dictate more what he wants the artist to do, then it's less of a collaboration, I guess. True. So, and then I think that, that the artist would have a much harder time as well trying to fit into that mold. But because the writer allows, Michelini in this case, allows Todd McFarlane to be himself, then I think we get a more natural, uh, a natural partnership. And um, the, the writing, there's still a lot of good stuff in here. And in terms of Todd McFarlane's own storytelling, like through from panel to panel, I think that this volume, because they have issue 314, where they get kicked out of their apartment, which is mm-hmm. pretty much all dialogue. And so that, I think, is where we can find the strength of Todd McFarlane. It's like anybody can, not anybody, but, you know, it's 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 easy to do big splash pages. It's easy to do even fight sequences, although you do need to keep your eye on choreography and such. But when mm-hmm. it comes to talking heads, that's where an artist really needs to show their strength, because the acting through through facial features and through body language is so important when you're doing just talking heads. And so that issue, when we get to it, I'll I'll point out some of these scenes because he's actually, I think he's really good at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that, that's a good point. You're right. It's not it's not all bombastic action, uh, although there is definitely a, a lot of that too. Yes, um, but there are definitely some quieter moments where you're right that the, you know the writing and then the acting that McFarlane has to do does take place, which is interesting because again we don't necessarily think of him that way. No, like not we at think all. of when we think of McFarlane, you think of those iconic action sequences. You think of the you know the the larger than life. Uh, you know everything. There's certain elements here that you can see where Spawn's going to come not too long after this, right? Like you can yeah. see you know, certain elements of his style are really creeping in and, and taking hold. And you're like, well, I can see where Spawn is coming from. But you're right, there are some quieter moments where he actually has to do the acting, and that is much harder, right? Yeah. It's to, to tell a you know, coherent story, especially when you only have word bubbles. Like, Mark Bagley's really good at that. I mean, a lot of his you know collaboration with Bendis, especially with Bendis, was, you know, just figuring out, well, how do I convey emotion when I'm just layering on text after text? Yeah, that, figured out a way yeah. to do it. That one issue of an Ultimate Spider-Man number 13, where it it's just mm-hmm. Peter and MJ talking in his bedroom on his bed. And that's the entire issue is just a conversation in one room. Like, And it was brilliant. It was so well done. I think Todd McFarlane is also, he's remembered for his adjectiveless Spider-Man run more than his amazing Spider-Man run. And Do you think that's true? I Well, from what you were just describing, I mm. think it is because he was the writer for that one as well that's as the true. artist. And he went for more of the, the the big bombastic fight scenes and such. He he didn't have as many of those quiet moments that Michelini definitely likes to put into his writing. Uh, and so when you take those out, that is a more pure Todd McFarlane, I think. And that's what he's remembered for, like you just said. I guess that's, that's probably true. And I think... Definitely, um, adjective list is more infamous um, yeah. because people think of, you know, again, Spider-Man number one, one of the best-selling comics of all time. So there's just something about that's always going to be kind of inextricably linked to who Todd McFarlane is. Yes. Um, and people kind of remember, you know, the storytelling, the, sorry, the writing not necessarily being great on those issues, but the, you know, the art, the art being very strong, but very dark. Yeah. And that you're right. That's probably what he's most remembered for. It's weird for me to think of that because I always want in my head want to say, well, no, he's remembered for, you know, the first appearance of Venom. And, right. and a lot of this stuff, but you're right. This is probably not the most iconic McFarlane Spider-Man stuff because the other stuff is so infamous and so part of the zeitgeist of who he was at that time. 
Yeah, I think Spider-Man 300 would be the the only other part of his amazing Spider-Man run that I think people would be like, oh yeah, Todd McFarlane. Uh, but yeah, you talk, talk about assassination. Like, I don't think people are going to be like, oh yeah, that was like the highlight of Todd McFarlane's <laughs> run. <laughs> I want to be proven wrong. I want I want there to be like mail saying, oh, my God, it was amazing. <laughs> OK, well, speaking of that, I do have some listener comments and then we'll get into um, a, a few other things. But the listener comments. Uh, well, first of all, we had a lot of people on Instagram, Twitter and on Facebook saying, Marvel, please reprint this volume because it mm. is out of stock. It has run its course and it's, it demands a high dollar on the secondary market. Um, even though it's not the highlight of Todd McFarlane's run. But, you know, people <laughs> want to fill their holes in their collections here. And so, yeah, Marvel, if you can please reprint this one, which, you know what, I'm confident that they will because the Spider-Man epic collections have been reprinted more than any of the other lines. So many mm. of those volumes have already seen reprinting. And this one's Todd McFarlane, which is a name that will that sells. So I'm pretty oh, for sure, sure. I'm pretty sure we'll it's a license to print. It's a license to print money. Like yeah. they're always gonna, you know, it, it'll eventually. It's not one of those ones where you're like, oh, it's on the bubble. I don't know if we're gonna get it. Like eventually, <laughs> you will get it. Like it's, you know, it is inevitable. It may be a while, but you'll get it. Yep, I think so. Okay, so Sean says on Facebook, he says this is the meat of the McFarlane run. There mm. you go. Uh, looking back at it, I can't believe what a big deal this was in 1989 at the 1989 comic shop. The writing is great and it still holds up, but there are a few quibbles. Sabretooth just seems like an add-on. Uh, yes, he does. The whole of the assassination plot seems to treat Spidey as a guest star in his own comic, similar to Round Robin. Yep. Mm -hmm. I would have to. I would. I would have been happy with more Spidey's new friends showing up in that storyline, like Solo made the cut. But Chance would have been good as well as a run in with mm. the Black Fox. Yeah. He says uh, when the epic line was announced, I felt like this era would be the last to see print. Having the McFarlane issues done makes me appreciate the Stern Romita Jr. and DeFalco friends issue even more as we wait for those there you go absolutely yeah uh, and bill says the highlight is obviously the todd mcfarland art this was ramping up to his adjectiveless spider-man title which many would say was the apex of his time on spider-man and at marvel that's what i was saying yeah that's right uh, and then personally i like his run here on spider-man amazing spider-man better as it felt like the series was more grounded in the mu it's a fun read mm, that's true I, I again i don't think he's wrong i think mm -hmm. it is more coherent because mcfarlane was still a very new writer like maybe he eventually honed his 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 storytelling um you know in terms of being a writer and a scripter himself but on the adjective list it definitely showed that he was new yeah and, and michelini is definitely to the one who's keeping it grounded for sure frank says for me this is the best and the worst of the mcfarlane era it's a lot of great stuff and great and fun stuff until issue 319 and then it's no longer fun. The bi-weekly <laughs> issues were often less inspired and this story is like that for me. But before that, it's great. And he also says, I am very fond of Parallel Lives. This is the graphic novel that's at the end of this epic collection. Um, yes. Conway does a great job in reworking and retconning stuff based on the new Mary Jane status quo. Uh, and Saviuk tries to channel Romita as best as he can. Can. Annual 23 has a great burn, John Byrne cover and some nice stuff too. And Spidey wears a tux. What's not to love? <laughs> uh, yeah, so we are splitting this epic collection into two parts. We'll talk about the first half in this one and then the, the actual assassination plot story and that graphic novel Parallel Lives 
we will talk about in the next episode. And boy, we'll have a lot to say about that, those, those two things. Yes, we will. Yep. Okay, John says, this book contains Amazing Spider-Man 312 and 316, which for me are the best issues ever created by David Michelinie and Todd McFarlane, both individually and as a team. Wow, wow. That's, that's quite a, a thing to say. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man 312 contains the legendary Green Goblin versus Hobgoblin battle, one of my favorite mm. favorites as a huge Hobgoblin fan, and integral in the Inferno becoming a real goblin arc. Mm, that's true. And then Amazing Spider-Man 316 boasts the best Venom cover of all time, period, and is <laughs> the middle of a great three-issue second appearance of Venom run. While Amazing Spider-Man 300 gets all the glory, Venom's second appearance is when they really go toe-to-toe -to -toe for me. It is the character's peak. There is mm. more in this book to discuss, but the importance of 312 and 316 cannot be overemphasized. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good comment. So I will uh, let's make sure we remember he uh, remember that comment when we get to issues three twelve and three sixteen and talk about their importance. One thing I will kind of throw out there because this is kind of a very a general comment about um, a lot of the art in here, which I will try to kind of make mention of when we get there. Yep. Is um, there when I was a kid, I remember reading or collecting the Spider Man and then Roman numeral two uh, trading card set. Yes. And a lot of the art was pulled directly from these these particular issues. So when we get there, I'll make sure to kind of mention some of those particular uh, shots, but they use them exactly. And I last year, I finally kind of went on eBay and bought the complete set because I'd only had a few a few of them when I was growing up. And it was a lot of fun to to have them all. But it, it made me realize just how many were by McFarland from this particular run. Oh, cool. Do you have that? Did you ever collect the cards? Or? No, well, I collected a lot of cards, but not that set. I had the other Spider-Man set that was completely drawn by Mark Begley. I still have that oh, set. So good. That's a great set. I, actually, at the same time last year, I bought that one as well. Because nice. I'd only had some of those growing up and I was so happy to have a complete set. Yeah, yeah. That's some really, really great stuff. Okay, so Michael says the Assassination Plot, as it was originally called, and he says that because the epic collection is just called Assassination. Yes. Uh, he said it, it was my entry point to regular comic reading. As someone mentioned below, Spidey and Espionage was fun a fun combo, plus all of the guest stars were exciting too. However, I flipped through the epic at a used bookstore last summer and was disappointed the story wasn't nearly as fun. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't live up to your uh, eight-year-old expectations, I guess, or whatever, however old you were. I guess not. Okay, a couple more comments here. Uh, or one more comment here. Will says, I haven't read it in years, but I remember loving it as a kid. Spider-Man with espionage. Probably my first exposure to Silver Sable, Paladin, Sabretooth. And it was a blast. I'm afraid to reread it now because I read the Peter David Hulk omnibus and McFarlane's work does not hold up for me. Interesting. Yep. Yeah, I think Todd McFarlane is one of those guys where either you loved it as a kid and therefore you still love it today, or it's like, what were they thinking? This is so 90s. Yeah, I, and again, I, I think I, I, I'm half, I'm halfway in both camps because again, I knew of him, I saw his art, I obviously know how much he matters, but I wasn't reading it at the time, and so I'm always going to come at it a little bit more skeptical. Yeah, and I think I'm the same way as well. I mean, there, like I said, there's a lot to love, but you can tell that he is, he's just not schooled in the same sort of illustration that the, you know, the old guard is. Um, he's definitely trying to push the envelope. Yeah, like even Peter's model like looks very different right like and after him you have uh larson where the model for peter starts to feel more classic again but like mcfarland's peter is very different yeah it's true 
yeah, I I think that he just changes a lot of stuff. Um, maybe because he can, or maybe because, like I said, this was going through an evolution. And for the longest time, there would be people like the editorial team would would purposely say, "We want your style to look more like John Romita because mm. he's the house style, right?" And so McFarlane is now in this age where you don't have to adhere to that. So yeah, let's let's change it up. Let's. I mean, he still looks like Peter. You still flip through it and like, oh yeah, there's Peter Parker and there's Mary Jane. There's still they still look like them. They just have mm-hmm. the, the signature artist style to it. It is interesting though because you have like Salakrop is a very seasoned hand at this point. So it's not like he was a you know a newer firebrand editor trying new things. Like he was a more established hand, yeah. especially after the. Um, Jim Owsley era. So it's just interesting that, you know, he really gave a lot of latitude in terms of some of the visual interpretations. You're right. I mean, it's still Peter, but it's definitely not kind of on-brand house model Peter that we've had for many, many years. Right. Yeah. And that could be also definitely a factor as to why people push against it. And then, you know, this is perfectly coupled in this volume. We have the Parallel Lives graphic novel, Mm -hmm. which as Frank was saying in his comment, Alex Saviuk definitely is putting on his best John Romita face there. So you have in this very volume, a very stark contrast between Todd's new modern take and then Alex trying to mimic the old classic take. Absolutely. Very, well, a little jarring, right? When you're reading it this way, you're like, whoa, what is this? Yeah, totally. Okay, so before we jump into the issues, I need you to tell me, Adam, if someone was just picking this book off the shelf, not having read any Spider-Man before, what do we need to know? Uh, you need to know Spider-Man's married. Um, yep. Recently, MJ had a stalker, uh, a, a very powerful, you know, kind of businessman who was obsessed with her, uh, who cr- owns the building that they live in. Uh, but he's been sent to jail, at least for now. Because he kidnapped her. I think that's a he very important her. point to, to remember. It's not just he was a that's, stalker. He that's actually right, yes, kidnapped he... her. You know, it's been a little while since you and I have have done the last volume. So, I, yeah, you're right. He kidnapped her, which is pretty bad. Um, other than that, you know, Peter has an Aunt May who brings in borders to her home. Uh, she's dating Nathan Lubensky, uh, and there's other borders in the in the home. And also another kind of character who's you know is shows up but doesn't really have anything to do here, uh, but at least exists in the orbit. Is uh, MJ's cousin is also kind of nearby and and hanging around with the with the couple as well. Uh, but to be honest, this is pretty new reader friendly. Like, there's not a lot you need to know because it, because of the era, it gives you a lot in the words. Yeah, exactly. And I think that you can jump right in. Oh, the other thing you should know is that this is the start of the Inferno era. Oh, that's right. Which, if you didn't know anything about Inferno, they don't really talk about what's going on and why all these demons are popping up in the city. But it's because um, there's a big X event happening over in the X books and X Factor and X Men and new mutants where Madeline Pryor is making the deal a deal with um, a, a demon to unleash a whole bunch of demons in order to like get <laughs> you know, I, I this is so convoluted that maybe we don't need to explain it here but just know that uh, there's a lot of stuff happening in New York and Spider-Man seems to be pretty oblivious to all of it yeah you know you bring up a good point right because like they don't really mention it but I guess that was 80s Marvel too like in um, uh, when uh, the Thor Simonson run was happening you had the cat of ancient winters opened up and so all these places were suddenly really cold and you know they mentioned it in a lot of other books i think spider-man was one of them where you know suddenly it was it was cold in new york even though it was summer but they never really mentioned why like it just was just something that was happening which is interesting and they kind of do that here like they have a a throwaway comment at the end of one of the issues that you know the empire state building is getting taller um and that's it (laughs) like like, it's kind of batshit crazy because i guess they just assume if you're reading spider-man you know what's going on in comics but then when you read it 
it in a vacuum like this, it is a little bit weird. Well, and with with the with the casket of winters or whatever it was called, like they that one was just a random comment and didn't really have any impact. But Inferno, these Inferno crossovers, like there's a corner box or corner yeah. triangle that that blatantly says, "Hey guys, this is Inferno. You should buy this." And it's <laughs> on like five issues. So it's like they they only give us a little editorial box saying, "Hey, check out re- recent issues of X Factor and X Men for the full explanation." <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I'm trying to remember, but wasn't it kind of like that with uh, when we were reading one of the Daredevil ones with like yes. the fall of the mutants and that kind of stuff, where you know stuff was going on, but they didn't really mention it what it was. Yeah, I felt like that one tied in a little bit more because Daredevil himself was dealing with personal demons and mm. and that kind of thing um even though yeah he he interacted with the demons that were on the streets actually like peter doesn't really interact with any of the demons that are showing up in this one no it's very strange and i actually and I, i'm sorry i'm jumping ahead so i do apologize yep. but you know there's an issue here where i felt like they could have included um the ancillary book because you have a whole kind of plot line with the with the hobgoblin and oh, we yeah. don't even really get to see what happens we will talk about that for sure i had a, an issue with that as well but yeah let's save that for when we get into the issues (laughs) sure yeah absolutely otherwise we'll never get going So we are going to start with Amazing Spider-Man number 311. This one is called Mysteries of the Dead. And in this issue, Spider-Man believes that it's his fault that a man is killed while the guy was trying to help him. It's kind of a brutal death. He gets crushed to death by a giant statue. It's brutal. Yeah. But it turns out, you know, it was Mysterio all along, and spoiler alert, the guy didn't really die. But it sends Spider-Man through this huge kind of post-traumatic stress. Uh, Like, the whole issue deals with how Peter is trying to cope with the fact that, you know, this guy was trying to help him, and he ended up dying. Yeah, I I didn't love this issue, because at the end of the the day, I don't think any of it really makes sense. Because, I mean, like, I, I, I do believe the idea of the guilt that Peter would put himself through, that's interesting. Like the issue is kind of fine until you, you know, learn what the, what's really going on at the center of it. Yeah. And then I think it kind of falls apart because I don't know if any of it really ring true or makes sense in terms of how is this an actual plot by a villain? But up until then, and so I, I cut you off, so I'll let you continue. But up until then, I do think it, it, it works as a character study. It does feel like we had done it not that long ago, because if you remember at the beginning of Craven's Last Hunt, he was already dealing with kind of uh, a character had recently died and he kind of blamed himself for that as well. And then he got drugged and everything happened in Craven's last hunt. So that only would have been like a year and a half earlier. So it feels like, you know, this is this is ground that they had tread not long before, although admittedly not by Michelani himself. Yeah, that's true. And I think this is actually something that Peter faces on a fairly regular basis is the guilt of something happening on his watch that he couldn't prevent. I mean, that's yeah. the whole Uncle Ben situation, right? And mm-hmm. so that that theme plays into his stories over and over again. And this is just another one of those tales. Now, I think what makes this one different, though, is because this is Mysterio. And Mysterio, he likes to play mind games. Like, that's kind of his thing. And so yes. he's purposely trying to understand undermine uh, Spider-Man's confidence through setting up this particular scenario um, in order to to kind of drive him mad. And, and he kind of does it for a little while until Spider-Man clues into what's going on. 
But did you buy the, like, I understand that, like, sometimes this is what Mysterio does, but usually has a, a greater motive than, like, I'm just going to mess with Spider-Man. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and think about how complicated this and complex this entire plan is. Like, he's going to have these creatures, you know, uh, seemingly come alive that Peter has to fight. Yeah. And he's going to be in one spot. Then there's going to be this couple he has to save from this mugger. And then it's going to look like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just the amount of dominoes that have to perfectly fall for this to work out as a plan. And then he seems... I don't even know why he's surprised that Spider-Man shows up there. I'm like, if he didn't, wouldn't he kind of be let down that none of this ended up mattering? Like, I just, <laughs> I found it very difficult to be like, this is such a, a Rube Goldberg machine of, of of a plot. And like, that's what I mean. Like, when you really kind of pull it apart, I don't know if it really works from the villain's perspective. But I do think if you just read it through from what Peter's going through, yeah, it's a good character study. Him really kind of having being really upset about this guy brutally being murdered in front of him, which I definitely was taken aback as when I was reading it again, I forgot that it was just a you know that wasn't real so i was like holy shit like, that's crazy in the 80s <laughs> yeah. to have someone just like killed outright like this and i guess the fact that he ends up not being dead is the only reason this went by the comics code like i was really struck by it yeah well and it's it's like seen in jurassic park when the dinosaur steps on you you don't actually see anything because the the fist that comes down on this guy is so huge but it's got this mm -hmm. um this sound effect Quelch, like it's this quelch, <laughs> this this terrible sound. <laughs> it's like, oh man, that's that's a pretty bad, brutal death. Um, but yeah, you're right. It, it in the at the end of the day, inconsequential. And I think that was probably the purpose. I don't mm. know if this was supposed to be like an inventory story or something like that, even though it is by the regular creative team. But at this point. Michelini is pretty much doing two-part and three-part stories. So to have a one-issue, like a one-and-done issue that doesn't really, it doesn't carry through any of the subplots. I mean, it, it ties into Inferno a little bit, but it doesn't even really have to. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the one page at the end that has a little bit of advancement uh, in the Norman Osborn story. But really, it doesn't, like you could take out the whole issue and you wouldn't miss anything. There's, no, there's, I, I think you're right. Yeah. yeah, it is kind of inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. So I wonder if that's just kind of why it doesn't ring true in its story. Because it's just, uh, I don't know if it was just kind of thrown in there well why don't we keep on going over to amazing spider-man number 312 do you want to introduce this one here adam yeah so 312 uh this is i think for a lot of people you know one of the more exciting chapters of this of this overall volume I, actually before we do i want to go back just for a second to the the last page of uh 311 where you have that kind of uh, uh harry osborne waking up in kind of a dead sweat yeah him looking more ripped than normal as he looks over his son does he just sleep in the nude like what are you what's the takeaway here um, but he's just looking over his son and then you have like you know the, the hobgoblin nearby and then he just said to find out how wrong Harry is check out Spectacular 146 which again is weird that you know usually in these epics they, they go to you know great pains that to add a text page or you know to add in the issue if there's a you know kind of a major subplot and I was quite surprised that we didn't get anything. Yeah I was surprised too but I also understand because it's not just Spectacular Spider-Man number 143 that you have to read it's also Web of Spider-Man number 46. And mm. there's even like there's even issues after this that wrap up that really should all be together. But I could see this entire Goblin War story being collected in a spectacular Spider-Man epic because 
uh, you'd have some more room to breathe. This one, because of the particular mapping, if you put that whole story in, it's mm. too much. Like you could bump Parallel Lives, the the graphic novel at the end of this, out of this this collection. But that's not enough room for all of those Goblin War issues that you'd need to include. You'd have to take away the last couple of chapters of Assassination Plot as well. And True. you're not going to split up that storyline over two volumes. So but why not a text page even like that's I think that floored me more that we didn't even get like a, it's, you know, it's not like Marvel hasn't inserted those before in different places. So why not get like a, a quick little text page just saying in this issue, this happens and this issue that happens so that you're not that surprised. But we kind of get that in the beginning of this issue there like mm. Goblin Harry is kind of thinking to himself about the events that happened in uh, web of Spider-Man. There's a editorial box for Web of Spider-Man 47 and such. So he, he kind of goes through the recap yeah. there. Um, it's just not in as great detail as we would like it to be. No. That being said, so again, this is this is a, a very well-known issue. Um, the cover is definitely fantastic. I mean, it was always fun seeing McFarlane draw, you know, the classic Spider-Man rogue. So here you have him, you know, drawing the Green Goblin, even though it's not the Green Goblin. I mean, it's not everyone's favorite. It's definitely the, you know, the also ran. And then we also have the also ran hot goblin so it's really the <laughs> battle of the second stringers here which is really interesting yeah i did i did find that mackendale never gets enough credit or enough uh you know just something about mackendale the minute he became the hobgoblin i think the, they just kind of made the hobgoblin a bit of a loser but that but mackendale was never really a loser like even at all his time as um the what's we'll call it the, the jack lantern he was still formidable you know he wasn't a joke and yet suddenly he kind of became a joke villain as the hobgoblin that you know he can't even fend off you know a harry osborne who doesn't really know what he's doing um and yet, you know, that's kind of where we end up. But that being said, McFarland is the draw here. He's drawing these iconic goblins finally fighting each other that we've never seen before. So if you were picking this up on the stands, this would be immediately very exciting because you're like, holy crap, we're going to get the Green Goblin versus the Hobgoblin. Maybe not the ones you really want, but it's still, you know, the uh, visually you're getting these two iconic characters fighting each other. And boy, is it like visually, it's just amazing as well, because McFarlane is just, um, you know, love him or hate him. He's doing an excellent job here. His version of of the Hobgoblin is is fantastic because he has this spawn-like cape. And like Todd McFarlane is great at capes. He's just yes. really, really good at capes. The, they, they're, they're huge and they flow everywhere. When he did Batman, it was awesome. And when he does Spawn, of course, and Prowler and all these, and Hobgoblin is no, uh, is, is no different his cape is just great and his version of of green goblin i like as well with the huge ears it's very mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's almost kind of a ditko-ish green goblin i like it a lot oh yeah uh, a question about uh, mcfarlane yep. for a second okay who, who do you think is better at capes uh neil adams or todd mcfarlane <laughs> well oh neil adams is good too but i think i think i would give an edge up to mcfarlane for having capes that seem to have a life of their own okay that's fair i, I would i probably throw uh norm brayfogel on there as well oh yeah also, he also has an insane cape uh, his cape game is on is on point <laughs> it's true yeah man his batman is just is just nuts i love it yeah he's all cape like <laughs> Uh, but yeah, this issue, if you look at a lot of these panels, um, the, the, the pages themselves flow really, really nice. And so let's see, I want to go to page 44 in this epic collection. Okay, so Peter has attached himself by webline 
on uh, on Hobgoblin's goblin glider, and they're mm-hmm. running like they're going up in the air. So the action of this panel it, it follows through Spider-Man on the left, and your eye kind of goes where the web line is and follows the action and the trajectory of where the Hobgoblin is going to the right. And then the Hobgoblin, his cowl, how it has the pointy the pointy front. It's mm-hmm. pointing down as well as the front plate to the goblin glider is pointing down, guiding your eye to the next panel below where it's Spider-Man. And then the action is taken from right to left, going all That's the way right. following the goblin. And then that panel is mimicked on the bottom of Spider-Man continuing his trajectory going left into the water tower. And I just love the the layout here. It's simple and it works really well and it's still full of detail. And mm-hmm. um, it just shows you the the all of the action that you need to know. Absolutely, no, it's very kinetic. Yeah, and I think that he does that. Uh, he he plays he pays attention to everything that he needs to on here as well. Um, uh, really interesting choices of uh, how he uses his really really tall skinny vertical panels as well. Um, if you turn mm-hmm. the page to page forty six, it has the goblin throwing pumpkin bombs from his glider way up high, and um, down below is a, a big face of hobgoblin. So like the perspective of the worm's eye view of hobgoblin and the green goblin way up high works so well for that long skinny panel. You couldn't have done it any other way. Absolutely, I think some of the the most effective panels um, that McFarlane does put it in here are the ones where uh, and this is true for most artists who draw the Hobgoblin is when they don't even see the actual mask when you just see the, the silhouette you just see the black yes. and then you just see the red eyes like it's very arresting it really uh, it's very creepy but it's it's the best look that the Hobgoblin ever has Yeah, um, where you just have the, those kind of glowing eyes and that's kind of classic Todd yeah it's very Todd and it's again something you can only really do in comics like you can't really do this the same way in like live action it's not going to look the same way it's not gonna look right mm-hmm. uh if you were ever to try and do this but there's just something about how comics can frame things that you really get you know magic moments like this okay so before we go on i forgot to mention uh in the last episode in our venom episode we were keeping track of every time felix the cat showed up in these issues oh yeah and so felix the cat in the previous issue was on the last page he was being held as a little felix the cat stuffy is being held by baby normie <laughs> and then on the first page of this issue the goblin war uh, felix the cat is hidden in the splash page in the attic oh okay so there you go I will I will say like again this is this is during Inferno so Inferno stuff is still happening so specifically you know MJ has a subplot where you know she's at work and they get attacked by you know kind of demonically possessed what jewelry yep did not really care for this whole sequence it felt very odd and yeah it just it kind of took me away from what I wanted to be seeing which was I want to see two goblins fighting each other and I also want to see Spider-Man in the middle and so whenever we kind of left that and we went to either a Kurt Connors you know subplot an MJ subplot um, I like that that there are subplots because it is something I miss in current comics. But at the same time, I was like, can we can we get back to the main action here? Like, it's a lot more exciting right now because, again, it, it's so visually arresting. Like, if you go to page 33, even, you know, just the, there's a, a tight vertical shot of, uh, I guess, it was Harry just going into the wrecked building. It's yeah. so cool. Like, there's just something about, it's this tight vertical. You just, at the top of it, you just have the goblin, but, but behind him, you have the trail of smoke. You have the motion lines. Totally. And it just looks cool. Like, it's just really visually arresting. And then right after that again you have another cool shot of the hobgoblin menacing with that you know the, with the glowing red eyes and it's almost like it's the same shot he uses a few times but it, again it's so so cool and 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 you know visually arresting in terms of storytelling though i'll go back for a moment to the first two pages of the issue pages 28 and 29 
you have that opening amazing shot of you know harry with the goblin mask and he's like screaming or, or like you know kind of yelling and it looks like norman more than harry mm-hmm. and then you, the next page you have harry and you have how upset he looks and how you know not comfortable and i almost felt like part of me buys it because he's a little bit crazy and he's you know he's amped up and he's you know really excitable but part of me just felt like you know maybe the model was off the first time because it looked too much like his dad and not enough like harry and i just wasn't sure how i felt about that did you have any kind of takes on that well, that might just be the inexperience talking, but I mean, they have uh, very distinct looks anyway because of their hair and such. And, mm-hmm. and Norman has a, a round face, whereas Harry has an oval face. Like he's he's yeah. more skinnier and stretched in that sense. And when you open your jaw, you know, your your face stretches, m- makes your whole head shape change to be skinny anyway. So it could just look, look yeah, it kind of does look like Norman. You're right. Um, also, Harry doesn't usually look angry, but Norman always looks angry. So when we see <laughs> exactly. a Norman face like that's or Harry face when he's angry, we just assume it's it's Norman. Maybe <laughs> it right. al- well, it almost looks like him, right? Yep. And then on the next page, as you said, you see a lot more of this this angular, um, you know, Osborne face, especially in that split uh, split shot yeah. where you see half of uh, Osborne's face and half of the Goblin. That's the model of of Harry that we're used to. Yeah, for sure, definitely. But you know, it's it, it's exciting, and again, for a long time. For for probably another what eight nine i'm trying to remember how many years i think it was maybe another eight or nine years before we ever got to see kind of a goblin on goblin action like this again and this is the first time that they meet right like they have a fight yeah, uh, yeah like yeah, we, this is the like, first time like harry harry was you know definitely dealt with the hobgoblin before but it was the first hobgoblin not this one yeah although i guess he wouldn't necessarily know that um but the original hobgoblin had kidnapped uh liz and mj when liz was pregnant and this would have been around what issues 259 or 261 around that period right so that that was the first time that they would have met or at least a version of the hobgoblin would have met uh harry but again he wasn't dressed up as the goblin at that time and then the next time we see as far as I know a Green Goblin versus Hobgoblin. It's Roderick and Norman, uh, the OGs, meeting each other. Uh, written by Glenn Greenberg and Roger Stern in Spectacular Spider-Man. I want to say two sixty-one to two sixty-three, which is again much later than this. Okay, so uh, I want to say something about the other issues of Spectacular and Web of Spider-Man. Sure. Another argument for including them in these epic collections is that Mary Jane's storyline continues in there. Mm. So the people that she's with, when they get attacked by these, um, the, the jewelry that comes to life, they, <laughs> they then get locked into this studio, this photography studio in spectacular spider-man whatever issue that is and then they have to like make their way through the sewer to escape and mary jane leads this whole group because they don't know what to do so she kind of takes charge that whole Mm. story is not seen in this epic collection because of that the other thing is that uh, through the course of inferno mary jane's niece who is living with them at the time uh, moves in with aunt may instead Mm. and that's told in those issues as well i think in web of spider-man or something and then so those of us who are reading through the epic collections we know that christy has been around because we saw her in the last volume she's not in these first two issues of this book though but then all of a sudden she's living with aunt may mm. in, in one of these future issues um i think they did that because they needed christy to have some stability in time because in the ne- next issue 
uh, or in two issues from now, I guess stuff is going to happen to their apartment that they don't want the kid Makes involved sense. in because she has her own storyline. So yeah, there's just a, there's a lot of stuff going on. And I really think that they should have had some sort of text captions to let us know about these subplots that are kind of jumping around. Yeah. I mean, it, it's tough, right? I mean, the Epic Collections already have, you know, a tough thing they have to do. Yeah, um, sure. Because, you know, especially in this type of period where Spider-Man has three books. And so, you know, some of those adventures are going to be referenced. Sometimes, as you mentioned, like there's bigger subplots that completely diverge from here, which is what happened with MJ. And other times it's smaller things which aren't of, you know, of any great import. But definitely if you were reading them all, you'd be like, well, hold on what's going on here yeah okay well let's keep let's keep on going to uh, the next one amazing spider-man number 313 this one is called slytherines <laughs> and just before we get into this description here felix the cat can easily be seen in this splash page on a cup that's sitting on the dash of this uh subway car or whatever they're in but in this issue, Kurt Connors is reuniting with his family for the first time in a long time, I guess. But just before that happens, the lizard persona takes over. Mm -hmm. And I think we're hinted that it's kind of a, a result of what's going on with Inferno. Something that's happening with all the demons is kind of triggering him to, to change. Um, this whole issue is kind of a foreshadow to uh, the adjectiveless Spider-Man lizard story that uh, Todd McFarlane will do in a couple of years from now. For sure. It does feel that way. Yeah, for sure. It's like he gets kind of a, a hankering for for drawing the lizard because the lizard is definitely like, you know, again, you're having McFarlane kind of hitting the hits here um, and he does do a great lizard. I would say the storyline itself is kind of all over the place and bonkers. But, uh, but the, you know, when you see him drawing the lizard, it's really iconic. Yeah, it's really exciting. Uh, again, the action is always great. I would say this is not my favorite. Is this the one that the one person said this is like their favorite issue? No, no, no. That was the last one we just talked about. Oh, actually. that was the last yeah, one. Maybe we should address that. We forgot to say that because that was um the Goblin War, Green Goblin and Hobgoblin fighting was what John said was one of uh, the best issues of of Michelini and Todd McFarlane. I would say you know he's not wrong there because it did did feel like it was a pretty good uh, combination and like you know there was a lot of it worked together. Yeah, it felt like they were on the same. page page again the art was pretty on point um it was a storyline that especially if you were reading at the time would have felt like really exciting because it doesn't matter which version of the go of you know the, the green goblin and the um the hobgoblin you're still getting these two characters together and that would have been exciting enough so i can absolutely see why it would be impactful and really resonate in someone's mind as one of their favorites the only thing that i think would have made it better was if we actually saw hobgoblin oh yeah sorry so one of the things that happens in i think web of spider-man is that uh Hobgoblin, as a result of failing to take down Green Goblin, Hobgoblin makes a deal with Naster, who is the demon behind Inferno, <laughs> to uh yep. you know he, he to become a demon himself and so he gets this demonic face and it changes his look and his character for many years to come after this and uh and that would have been cool to see todd mcfarland drop that yeah that's true it, it, you know it's interesting because the actual artist who's on that i want to say it's busema but I, I feel like it's not quite as creepy and dynamic as maybe it could have been if you yeah. had someone like mcfarland doing it i agree yeah no offense to busema if he was the one uh because he's obviously you know one of the all-time greats but um you know there's just some people have strengths and you know that wasn't maybe his yeah okay so yeah continuing on with this uh we get 
this is where we see Christy in the first for the first time in this volume, and uh, I think it's for the first time in this volume. But anyway, she has a problem that we we don't know about, but they're dropping hints left and right about her situation. And um, in hindsight, we can pick up on all of these hints because we mm-hmm. know what her situation is. But if you don't, um, it'll all be revealed. I don't even know if it's, I don't think it's revealed in this book. I think it's revealed in one of Conway's books, either Spectacular or Web of Spider-Man. Yeah, he, he was more of her character. So yeah. like, yeah, we didn't, we didn't see a lot of, like this, this, you know, if you were just reading the amazing epics, you're, you see Christy, but you don't really see why she's around or what she's doing because this, you know, she was a side character who was used in those books. Like, it's nice that she exists here and she's not completely, a, you know, a function of the, um, of the tertiary books. But yeah, she's definitely, her story is elsewhere. Yeah. So, so I, I always like the lizard. He's one of my favorite characters. And uh, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned this in the podcast before. I, I originally liked him because he just has the same name as me. And that's when you're, <laughs> when you know, when you're eight years old and you're like, you latch onto those characters. So I also really liked Nightcrawler. Uh, okay. and, I, and I still, to this day, I still really like Nightcrawler and I still really like the lizard. And I just find that his appearances are great because... Um, I do enjoy the wrestle between the wrestling between the man and the monster that Kurt always has to go through. And in this issue, um, it's always hard to pinpoint where Kurt Connors is in terms of whether or not he can control himself when he's the lizard and such. But in this one, he seems to be able to do a pretty good job of controlling himself as the lizard because he 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 essentially saves his family from all of these demons that are attacking. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he says that it's because he wants to kill them or whatever. But I think that there's a there's some subtext there that he's trying to yeah. he's still trying to protect them. What what did you think about Spider Man versus the uh, the giant balloon? <laughs> yeah, I loved it. I thought it was great. <laughs> it had shades of um of Ghostbusters, right? Because Ghostbusters yep. would have been. Ex- extremely popular at this point and inferno just is, is ghostbusters a lot of it yeah. you know the demons running amok in the city and stuff a lot of them that's are true funny. i never thought of it that and way and now we have a, a stay puff marshmallow character here but you're absolutely right <laughs> yeah so i didn't have a problem with that as well and we always like a little bit of levity in our spider-man books so that's fine too Oh, for sure. I mean, and, and this one, I mean, aesthetically, just from like a color colorist standpoint, this is definitely a darker issue. Yeah. You know, somehow, like, again, there's something about the way that McFarlane draws the lizard. He looks really feral and very scary. Yeah, I love it with the huge teeth. Because if you think about the way that lizard has been drawn for so long, they overemphasize the the scales around his mouth and such, and he kind of does look a little goofy. I'm thinking of like the way Gil Kane would draw him in the 70s mm. and such. And that's kind of the standard of how lizard has looked for many years until Todd McFarlane came along and showed us, hey, we can do this guy a little bit different. Yeah. And actually, if you think about it that way, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, he never really went back to the old school, you know, kind of lizard look for ever because yeah. it's always kind of been informed by what we got from McFarland really kind of revolutionizing that character. Mm-hmm. It's true. The last page of this, we see the return of Jonathan Caesar, the uh, the stalker. He is in jail in a uh, minimum security prison, <laughs> and uh, because he's not a supervillain, I guess or something. But anyway, it looks like he is pulling the strings. He's got some, he's got some sort of devious plan, and we're going to find out what that is in the next issue. Now, I guess we, uh, just to your point earlier, I mean, we we should just start stop calling him a stalker, just call him the kidnapper. The kidnapper. Well, he's still stalking them, even though. He, well, that's true. 
Yeah, he's, he's doing just, both. He's just not a good person. No, but I I think um it's interesting because I think Tom McFarland is probably the best artist to be drawing him because he really does sinister and creepy quite well. Yeah, it's true. Like the shots on this last page where you have him kind of grinning at, at his uh his lawyer, like really really scummy looking. Like he 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 looks perfect. <laughs> he does. Okay, let's do this next one. Three fourteen. This is I I think I mean a lot of people know this issue for the cover more than anything else. Yeah, because it's extremely iconic. There's just something about it. Um, it's very of the time. It has so many things I love about comics in general, though. Like you have uh, characters talking. Um, you have, you know, kind of a, a few narration boxes on it. Like Peter and Mary Jane evicted just in time for Christmas. You have the shot of Spider-Man with the uh, with the with the Santa hat on. Like there's a lot of really nice, t- nice touches there that really kind of make the cover feel more lived in. And I do miss when comics were more, you know, had covers that were more expressive of what came inside and weren't just art pieces. Right. I mean, I like Alex Ross art as much as anyone, but I don't need every issue of like Iron Man to have an Alex Ross cover that has nothing to do with really with what's going on inside. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I agree with that completely. So this this is a fun one. I mean, not not fun one, but there's a lot going on here. You have you know Peter and MJ get evicted. Uh, you know they, they realize that if they try to fight this, um, it's going to cost them a lot. So like they don't really know what to do. Peter has a lot of pride and doesn't really want to move back home. I love his reasoning though. He's like, well, I don't want to have to explain where I'm going all the time. Although that feels like a very mid twenties you know boy type of thing to bristle against. But uh, you know he has to kind of figure out uh, at Christmas they're evicted. What are they going to do? Where are they going to go he doesn't want to go bunk in with aunt may and you know it's an interesting kind of morality tale for for peter to kind of understand you know it's okay to ask for help i can totally understand where he's coming from though because you know sure. who wants to move back in with their parents like that's you know he's he's got a life of his own he's married and stuff he doesn't want to it, it, it hurts his pride to go back backwards like that and uh, especially for a superhero but you're right it is a good morality tale and this is the one that i was saying is all talking heads. There's really mm. no actual action except for like two pages where he stops a mugger in the park, which isn't That's really, right. there's not really any action there either. But it's all talking and it's really great. On page 80, there's a great shot of Spider-Man swinging like kind of through the park. There's the moon behind them. There's some snow in the air. Yeah. This is definitely one of the ones that was used for that card set I mentioned. <laughs> oh, beginning. yes. Yeah, not surprised. I there believe it was card number ones. one, actually. Oh, okay. If you go to page 84 and 85, Mm. okay, so here's 84, and Peter is going through conversations with different people. And so we have a static, a fairly static shot of Peter, just his face. So what Todd McFarlane has to do is convey just in the facial expression what he's feeling or thinking in this conversation. And he's trying to find a new place to live. He's he's trying to decide who he would approach in order to ask to bunk on their couch or whatever. And so if you don't read any of the words, I think you can kind of figure out what he's thinking without having to read anything. And I, that's that's an important part. Yeah. There's a great progression of Peter's face, right? Because yep. it's ostensibly the same model, but you have just his expression and this kind of the way he's carrying himself is slowly changing. So you get to the bottom of the page when he's talking to Jameson, he just looks so dejected. <laughs> yes, exactly. And you can kind of see him getting more crestfallen with each particular panel. So you're right. There's a lot of great acting going on there. And then you then you go to the next page here, number 85, mm-hmm. and you change your mood. In this one, you don't have static images at all. And uh, each one of of these is a different shot so you have like an establishing shot of the 
of the taxi cab and of Flash's boxing business. Mm -hmm. And you have a mediating shot a little bit with Peter and Flash talking and you have the close-up of the hands and an aerial shot of the bus. Like there's, there's so much variety in here to keep it interesting, but it doesn't distract. None of it distracts from the conversation that they're having, which is a really heartfelt conversation between two friends, which at this point, Peter and Flash are really good friends. And I think that this is just, you look at these two pages, they are two different attempts at storytelling, and they're both mm -hmm. really, really well executed. And it, it's not a fight scene, no punches are thrown, there's even a little bit of humor in there in some cases, and it's like, this. Todd McFarlane, I think, is actually good at his job. Yeah, no, and I, I think from a writing standpoint, um, I really like how Michelani kind of uh, writes the conversation between uh, Peter and Flash, and the fact that Flash is like, I don't really have a place to sleep myself. Yeah. I've been sleeping here. You can have my spot. I'll go bunk in at the Y. Like, I really like that interpretation of Flash, which yeah. is obviously a far cry from the Silver Age, but it really is very nuanced. And again, as you said, it shows the depth of friendship between these two people that he's willing to do anything he can to help out his buddy. Exactly. Yeah, I love it. I think that this this issue was probably the standout for me um, out of all of these issues that are here, even though there is no action in it. And it ends in Christmas, and I always like the Christmas issues. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, one of my my first Spider-Man issues, I remember kind of reading when I actually was, you know, old enough to be like, I'm going to pick up every issue, I'm going to, I'm going to follow it. Uh, was I believe Amazing Spider-Man 420, yep. which is a weird one because it's like uh, Spider-Man and X-Man having a, a Christmas issue, right? Yeah, but they do, and he invites <laughs> Nate Gray for Christmas dinner. Totally great. <laughs> Anything else about this particular issue? I do actually. I will point out though, page 87 does feel a little extra busy in terms of like. No, I, I don't it's mean true, this is yeah. in a bad way at all because there's so much line work on like every behind him obviously it, it works because it definitely makes the whole it, the whole image look very uh like you can feel it um in a way that if it was just kind of a generic background you wouldn't but it does feel very like at the same time over rendered yeah i agree and i'm not sure if there is a if the lines have just scanned thicker than normal because sometimes mm. some of these issues the line quality is really really thin and then some of them it looks like it, it's just a, they've um they thickened up the lines or such. And this is one of those issues where I feel like maybe the original didn't look as busy because the lines were a little thinner. If they were a little thinner, that would give the background some more room to breathe. But you're right. It's very dense as the splash mm. page goes. But Absolutely. Yeah, it's not uh, it's a minor a minor nitpick, but the, the word balloons do get kind of lost in that detail. They do. Anything else about that particular issue? Well, I'll just say that Felix the Cat shows up on the splash page. Uh, he's <laughs> hiding in a box of Peter's stuff that's kind of been moved out to the street. Okay. But yeah, then after that, we can go, we can move on. 315 has a great cover with Hydro Man and Spider-Man. I think that's very iconic. Yes. Um, so is the uh, the kind of very cheeky, uh, you know, little Venom box showing that it's the long way to return of Venom. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, it's a pretty long period. You know, it was in 300, now it's 315. Well, I don't know. It's not that long. It's... I mean, for a breakout, exciting new character that people loved, I, over a year is pretty, you know, not a short period. Yeah, I, I mean, at this point, I think Venom makes one appearance a year. And if you dedicate three issues, like it does here, to telling a Venom story, that's a quarter of your year. Yeah. Uh, you can't have him show up that often. Otherwise, he it's basically a Venom book. Yeah, which, I mean, at the time, people would have been okay with that because he was so red hot, right? Yeah, that's true. Okay, you want to take us through this issue? Yeah, so this this is a big one, right? Because, I mean, you start off with, you know, Venom uh, escaping from... Well, where is he? He's, he's in the vault. Is, oh, it is the vault. I was like, is it, is it the vault? Yeah, he escapes from the vault. 
Now, this becomes a point of contention for a lot of people that you know, this is the first kind of changing of his character to be someone who, you know, uh, prides innocence. Um, you know, he he kills this guard, but he's like, he feels bad about it because but he has to escape. And that's just what he had to do. And I feel like this is definitely a, a big moment for the character and how people kind of interact with the character, because it does show that there's a little bit more to him than we would expect. Yeah. So in the second issue, sorry, second page here, uh, you get you jump right into the action with uh, Hydra Man and Spider Man, which I do like that. There's no kind of additional preamble or setup. You've got just jump right into the action, and this is um, for fans of the uh, miniatures game HeroClix. Um, a long time ago, they used they added in a game effect that was the, these additional cards that you would play. And I remember I can't remember what the card was specifically, but I remember that they had this piece of art with Spider Man jumping into Hydra Man used on that card. Ah. so I remember seeing it there. It's fantastic. It's really fun art seeing Spider-Man fight against Hydra-Man. It's very cool stuff. And that takes up about the th first uh, three or four pages. But uh, yeah, I found it tremendously engaging. Um, it was a fun fight to see. I think it's hilarious that Hydra-Man got the cover, even though the big draw is Venom returning. It's like you said, it's cheeky. Because this is only, it's three pages. One, two, three. Yeah, it's three pages of Hydra-Man. And that's it. That's all it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and then we just get a morality play. Right. And I, again, I like this because I do like when like that's what they can kind of use superheroes to do. Like Spider-Man more than most heroes is, is pretty much always going to be definitively white hat. Like he is going to be a good guy. There's never really a lot of shades of gray for Peter as a character. Um, but I like that there's morality play. So like you hear, you know, a lot of this is about Nathan. It's about Nathan kind of stealing and then yeah. Peter kind of calling him out on it to trying to protect him. Um, not the first or last time we'll see that. Um, but I do like how, it, you know, kind of adds some extra dimension to these characters and again you're right it's weird that you know hydra man gets the cover and is really only in a couple pages but really that's the only action in this you know in most of the issue you have you know spider-man fighting these thugs who are uh, threatening late nathan but that's not really cover worthy yeah you're right it is not but he does a good job that, that whole the whole scene where where peter comes to his rescue is is really great and it's like Peter's been watching Nathan and knows something's wrong and finally gets to confront him on it. And we, I can't remember if we knew that Nathan had a gambling problem before this, or if this is the big reveal to us as well. But uh, it, you know, it, it, it hurts the way that they tell the story. It's like, you feel really bad for this guy who has a, an addiction problem and he doesn't know how to deal with it. And he refuses to ask for help and is getting him in a lot of trouble. Well, yeah. And it's extra sad, right? Because like you, he goes through all this with Spider-Man and Peter and at the end he still asks for a dozen lottery tickets yeah. like he just can't help himself it's and a problem if you think, yeah and if you think about it like for 1989 it's a pretty like advanced stuff like this is you know addiction is not you know nowadays I think we're more open to talking about different forms of addiction and how that kind of and seeing it in media is probably more naturalized but for 1989 this would have been pretty progressive yeah Okay, go to page 110. 110, all right. I love this page because of the, there's five extremely tall, skinny panels that go from top to bottom. Mm. And they're staggered so that they're easier to read, but they're still, they're, they're not that easy to read. But I really, really like what he chooses to put inside all of these panels. The first panel is this aerial shot. So you mm -hmm. can see the, the two characters walking down the street. The second one, the close-up of Nathan's face with his just basically the rim of his glasses. And then the third panel is this action shot of handing the credit card from one person to the next. 
And then I really like this extreme close-up of the wheel in the fourth panel with Peter mm. Parker in the far background, really small. Like the is it, like it's got this forced perspective kind of a, a deal here. It looks great. And just having to like to draw all the spokes on that wheel and such an extreme angle is, is is challenging. And he does a good job. And then yeah, Peter pulling out his own wallet out of his his coat. I just like this pa- this page because it's mm-hmm. unique. It's like. I don't think you'll find any artist that will attempt to try something like this, and uh, and Todd McFarlane does it. I think you're right. Even the next page, like even the way that the panels are, and you have kind of the bleed from the MJ full headshot, like kind of bleeding into where the other uh, panels kind of break off. Mm-hmm. It makes the shot feel much not busy because that's that more of a negative connotation. But there's a lot more going on here as a result. Like it, it feels that there's a lot less um, white space as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, and just uh, if you look at that same page, look at Christy in the first panel. She's sitting on her leg. Mm-hmm. It just little details like that make it just more personal or natural. Like she's not just sitting. Her legs aren't yeah. just going straight down. She, her leg is tucked under her and therefore her whole body posture is, is changed and different. And I, I like just the little touches like that. Yeah, it's a nice touch for sure. Yeah. Poor, poor Aunt May. I think uh, she, I don't think that Michelini really knew what to do with her character at this point. She's kind of gone through a few different different phases. And right now, like you, you mentioned before, she's she has these borders at her house. She's renting out the room to other seniors. Mm-hmm. And one of them she started a romance with. But these other seniors that are in the house, they, they don't really have a point. We, we never really see much of them. I don't even know if they have names. Like they're not, besides Nathan, I really couldn't tell you who else lives there. Well, on page 106, we see two of them arguing, and one of them says, Leave him alone, Rose. And the other says, Don't you talk to me like that, Victor? So we do know. <laughs> They have names. <laughs> Good detail. Good job. Yeah. But yeah, it's kind of a little ridiculous that uh, they just kind of hang around. And <laughs> it's just this. And then they're moving in. Christy moved in and Peter and Mary Jane moved in. How big is this house? I always thought right? that they lived in a pretty small house that even that they couldn't afford to pay the mortgage on or whatever. Like now all of a sudden she has like eight people living in her house at one time. Yeah, that's yeah. A lot of questions. Yeah. <laughs> the big anyway, house. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the the Felix the cat in this issue, it's in the hallway on page 105 when Peter is coming out of the, the dark room uh, that he set up in the basement. And he's like, is the coast clear? Felix can be seen hiding under a table in the background there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, moving on to number 316. This is the other issue that John said is one of the most important issues. Uh, and it does have a very iconic cover. It's one that is often used in reprints and yeah. it's really great. It's a fantastic cover, extremely, you know, evocative. I'm actually surprised that they were able to get the red kind of blood dripping off his hands. Yeah, very true. Like for the Comics Code Authority, like that's a little shocking. Well, they don't they don't show Spider-Man torn up himself. So I guess, you know, maybe that's Could have been someone a, else's blood. <laughs> or it's like it's reflecting a red the red light from across the street or I don't know. <laughs> I'm just trying to make things up here. Make up excuses. <laughs> uh, anyway, this issue is called Dead Meat and the first that first issue was just kind of all set up uh, as Eddie kind of lurks in the background, but now we get uh, we get him fully out of jail and fully on the hunt to find Spider-Man, and he does so by uh, visiting his old apartment. I love this interaction that he has with the black cat, who is also returned. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and she, both of them don't know where he's lived. But Venom eventually tracks him down and they have a fight in a meat shop. And this is important because it reminds us just how creepy and how powerful Venom is. Um, now, we have to remember that this is only really Venom's second run-in with Spider-Man. So anybody who missed that one issue, because it was only one issue, it was yeah. only Spider-Man 300. And if you didn't get that one, you haven't met Venom yet. And so this issue needs to let us know how high are the stakes. And so they have a fight in this meat locker where Venom shows off all of his powers, including the fact that he can't, uh, he, he cannot be detected by Spider-Man's spider sense. And this is all to let us know that the next issue is going to be just nuts because Spider-Man, there's no way that Spider-Man can can beat this mm -hmm. guy. There, there's a lot of quieter, inch more interesting kind of elements that also come out of this issue. Like, first of all, on page 124, there's a great shot of Spider-Man and his camera, although it looks like him, he's holding a gun, um, which again, <laughs> this was in that this was in the Spider-Man card series that I mentioned earlier. Um, so I, I'm very used to seeing that particular image. The brief scuffle between Venom and Black Cat is something that that, you know, I remember first hearing about this in, I want to say, Spider-Man 35, uh, which is part four of Maximum Carnage, because in that issue, we have, you know, Black Cat goes to join, you know, kind of Spider-Man and Venom's forces, and she referenced getting her nose broken the last time they tussled. So I remember long after that, I read this issue. So I was like, oh, yeah, this is when that happens. Hmm. Um, when I, another great detail. So obviously, it's a very savage battle to remind you, just as you said, how dangerous Venom is. But also at the very end, um, this is where Black Cat finds out that Peter's married. So it's right. not only enough that she just got her butt kicked and, you know, he just happened to leave her alive. And now she also finds out that Spider-Man's married, yeah. um, which is going to have a huge impact on what that character is going to be like for, you know, for the foreseeable future going forward with her and Flash, etc. And it's because of kind of this jealousy. Yeah, yeah. Great, great comments. Yeah, that the off screen battle, the fact that we I mean, we do we do kind of see it. There's a brutal scene where Black Cat's face kind of gets smashed in on the ground there. But I think the full extent of the battle is not actually seen. Mm. And and it's it's probably way worse than they actually show here. So it's quite quite brutal. I do like the last page as well because it's, it's, it's a great comics thing because it's kind of set up the next issue where Spider-Man's like, well, I have a moment to regroup because he doesn't know how to find me. And then, of course, Venom finds the we've moved thing so yeah. that now he can exactly find them. Um, I really like that because, again, it's it's a great cliffhanger that you know peter thinks he's got he's got time to to spare but we there the reader know that he does not at all and it just kind of ratchets up that tension for when you read that next issue mm -hmm. there's also a subplot here mary jane has gone she's gone for a, a fashion shoot but then they canceled and uh she says that the uh, that others have canceled as well that's going mm. to be an important subplot here that she can't find work uh, and this is important because they've just been kicked out of their house and they're trying to find a new place to live and rent is not cheap in New York City, even in 1989. I can't imagine what it's like today. Yeah. Uh, but they can't afford it. And with Peter, he's, Peter also isn't finding work because there's a new character on the scene. Um, what's his name? Katzenberg. Yeah, Nick Katzenberg. Uh, Nick Nick Katzenberg, who is uh, now Jonah's primary Spider-Man photographer. So Peter is not even able to cash in uh, those those checks there. 
Uh, one more note about the artwork. I just want to point out page three, 136 and 137. A huge splash page of Spider-Man swinging over the city. Mm-hmm. But Todd McFarlane is using um, a photograph in the background instead of yep. drawing it, which in the other pages, in the other issues, he's been drawing all of his cityscapes. Very intricate, very detailed. But he decided to go with uh, some photography for this one. And I wonder if maybe that was just to uh, either he was experimenting or he was running out of time because uh that's kind of a shortcut i think a little bit for sure this is this, i mean this is definitely the the as you said kind of the, the next issue anyway is going to be the the meat of you know the spider-man venom battle like a, a true kind of knockdown drag out battle yeah um i believe it's this particular battle that gets a, a reprinted in the spider-man versus venom trade paperback from the early 90s which is only important because it's because of that that we have the classic eric larson tongue <laughs> right. uh, on venom because venom sorry eric larson i should say um you know mistakenly misremembered that cover thinking that mcfarland had added a tongue so he's like well i gotta add this tongue not realizing he was pioneering something new for the character which is like a really funny story for something that's become so iconic oh absolutely like a complete accident okay so felix the cat in this issue it's on page 134 when peter comes into the bedroom and mary jane is cuddling with a stuffy on the bed looking all sad there's a poster of felix the cat on their wall this this would be amazing yeah (laughs) what a dedication to a bit yeah no kidding it's great uh okay amazing spider-man number 317 you want to take this one so 317 is to me like one of the more iconic of the kind of early spider-man uh venom battles um i do love page 144 we have eddie brock showing up on the the doorstep very smarmy uh this is definitely something that was replicated in the 90s animated series uh where they had kind of uh brock go to uh, peter parker's home um and it's 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 very comical and this is plays up to some of the cartoony aspects of uh of mcfarland's artwork where you have you know eddie brock kissing uh aunt may's hand while at the same time uh parker's like grabbing grabbing with his his arm uh the symbiotes on top of it kind of you know flaps them a little like there's a lot going on here whereas aunt may is totally oblivious which is very old school you know treating aunt may kind of stupid uh but it does have a nice kind of a punchline to it and then I do find that Brock himself, I don't know if, even though he created the character, if McFarlane has a really good consistent look for him. Because if you look at him on page 144 and you go to page 147, now he's got like a, a wider flat top in a way that's slightly different than the hair we got from before. <laughs> yeah, a huge chin. Um, yeah, like some of the, 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 the elements are still there, but they're just, they don't quite look right. But again, then you have one page 148, you know, Spider-Man's, you know, deciding he's got to go get some help. It's a great shot. To your point earlier, now you have McFarlane actually doing the backgrounds and there's a lot here like you can't fault McFarlane for not putting in detail and putting in the work yeah because there's a lot here whereas a lot a lot of other artists may not have you know, gone to this level of detail and made it made it a little bit more generic but this is very detailed uh you know Spider-Man goes to visit the Fantastic Four um I love that this is you know the the super rocky thing um I just like this interpretation of the character um and I actually thought that uh, McFarlane did a pretty good job of it then you have, uh, again, Peter goes back and, uh, to, to AMAs. Eddie Brock's there. He realizes that, uh, you know, he really shouldn't mess around with trying to get help because Eddie Brock will know. And then, again, we're getting closer and closer to having the big rock, uh, big kind of knockdown drag out fight, which starts on page 156. And this is visceral. It's, it's pretty brutal. I actually find it to be, a, in some ways, a more engaging and enjoyable fight sequence than we've got in 300. Um, it oh, plays sure. up a, a lot more with what the symbiote can do, like grabbing him through the sand. You know, there's classic, whenever you're fighting Venom, you have to have an explosion and fire of some kind. 
kind. So, you know, Spider-Man trying to kind of last as long as possible and doing stuff that we don't see as much anymore, but makes sense because this is so early is Peter trying to appeal to the symbiote himself yeah, or itself, I should say. And then as a result, there's kind of a feedback loop because it's trying to kind of stay connected to two different hosts and ends up kind of uh, shocking both so that uh, Spider-Man just kind of walks away <laughs> from the battle at the end, which is kind of weird. But again, I it's very iconic. This is a great kind of second battle. Um, now, you know, Peter knows what he's really up against, whereas in 300, he didn't. He was just reacting. Uh, here, he can be a little bit more proactive in terms of his approach. So I thought this was great. Yeah, I, so I agree. I really liked also the fact that Peter tried to appeal, appeal to the symbiote because it's something that um, it, it, this is still new because the symbiote hasn't been detached from Peter for that long at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, because and the, and the symbiote stayed with Peter for quite a long time before Peter got rid of it. And then, so yeah, it still has this longing to be with Peter. I love how they explored that with the with the scientist and such. My only problem is you turn the page, like we have this great battle. They're all going, it's, it's coming to a head. It's brutal, visceral, like you said. Then you turn the page to the last page here and they just get knocked out. Yep. <laughs> and then they like, and then it's over and they walk away. And I'm like, Peter doesn't have any sense of urgency of trying to like, yeah, it's weird. The symbiote or get Eddie back in jail or whatever. It's like, I was so, I was actually quite disappointed with this mm. ending here, even though the rest of the issue is really great. I love how creepy and in your face Eddie is throughout this entire thing. He's like, I'm here. I'm right beside you, Peter, and you can't do anything about it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you, you know, you're not wrong. It is kind of a rushed conclusion because, like, it, it's not a bad way of resolving how their physical conflict ends. But you're right; it's kind of a weird, you know, yeah. like that's it. Like he just kind of stumbles away. Like, does he get picked up in the vault? How does the vault get called? Like, there's, there's no a resolution. lot of questions. Yeah, there's no resolution at all. Yeah, he just kind of leaves it up there. I mean, as a reader, you can kind of fill in the blanks, but you know, do you have to? <laughs> Well, I think as a reader, yeah, I usually with movies, there's a little bit of a cool down period at the very end where you like mm -hmm. tie up your loose ends or whatever and reflect on the big battle. But this one, I think they just ran out of pages. And yeah, I guess so, so. They just kind of had to end it. <laughs> and that's what they did. They did end it at that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so that splash page on page 148, that had to be one of your trading cards, right? Uh, I think it was. Actually, I'm not sure if it was, to be honest. But it has been used It has been used everywhere. All over the place. It's one of the, the most common used, I think, uh, Todd McFarlane Spider-Man posed pictures. I would say so, yeah. It's definitely on the list. Yeah. Yeah, visually, there is just some great stuff here. Um, interesting choice also to give Venom this really big underbite in a lot of these panels, which mm -hmm. may be the reason why Eric Larson confused it for a tongue, because sometimes it does kind of look like that. Uh, the one on page uh, 147 in particular, that bottom jaw is jutting out so far. <laughs> yes, it is. You can see, like, yeah, you can see where a tongue is. A tongue is coming. Yeah. Let's continue on with Amazing Spider-Man number 318. This one is called Sting Your Partner. Not Swing Your Partner, but Sting Your Partner. <laughs> and here is another instance of Todd McFarland redefining or redesigning a character which will have pretty big lasting effect on this character for from now on. Uh, and mostly because of the long tail. Because up until this point, Scorpion has had a fairly short kind of stubby tail. Mm. But now we get a long tail, and it reminds me 
of when Eric Larson would draw Dr. Octopus's tentacles, how they would kind of just be as insanely long and going all over the place. Oh, yeah. McFarlane kind of does the same thing with Scorpion's tail here. And now he's also added the actual Scorpion uh, stinger to it. Yeah, yeah, I, I I forgot that that was him. I do think it's yeah, definitely one of the better redesigns or kind of re conceptualizations of a Spider-Man villain. That's for sure. I mean, it definitely makes Scorpion look a lot cooler. Uh, he looks like more formidable threat than you know he had ever kind of looked previously. I do think it's interesting that a character like Scorpion has changed so much throughout the years because the you know certain design elements will be added, but the actual costume itself does fluctuate a lot. Um, it's like it's a character that they can never really get right. And if you look in the mid nineties. Like he had many different looks, and none of them really stuck. Like he, had, he was blue at one point. Um, that was not a very good look. That was in the, the kind of the next <laughs> yeah. chapter stuff. That didn't work by John Byrne. But even in the that kind of mid '90s when the Clone Saga was happening in Spider-Man Unlimited, he had his own kind of costume redesign there. Like this is a character who's constantly being redesigned because I don't think anyone's ever really happy with the design. Although there's nothing wrong with you know again this interpretation of the Deco classic. No, there. Yeah, there's nothing. I think this is subtle enough, and it still it still is very similar to the Ditko classic. Like, I mean, with the terms of his eyes and the the full body suit and everything. It's very like that. yeah. It's very faithful. It's just the tail, just the tail yeah. that he kind of changes here. Uh, okay, we all are also introduced to Justin Hammer, who doesn't debut in this. He he's been an Iron Man for a number of years, but I can't remember. Is this the first time we see him in Spider Man? It might be. I think so. And he has supplied Scorpion with his new costume because he wants to get this high-ranking government official and uh, he wants Scorpion to kidnap him so that he can u- trade this this general for uh, all of his, his secrets with uh, one of the you know enemy countries, whatever country that's going to be. And uh, true to form, Scorpion only is concerned with getting his revenge on J. Jonah Jameson. And so yep. he kind of like fumbles his way through this this battle. Now, there are a bunch of subplots here as well. There's, there of course, the Mary Jane story of her appointments canceling is still going on. And she's now mm-hmm. starting to rebel against that. And, and she goes clubbing late at night to try and, uh, you know, dull the pain. And there's also the, you know, Peter can't get any photography assignments. And then also Norman Osborn appears again, which uh, they're going to set him up for something big in a little while here as well. But mm-hmm. uh, well, we have J. Jonah Jameson's actually the chameleon, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. There, that's the sub other subplot that uh, was hinted at. I think, was it hinted at in the other issue? Oh, no, it is hinted at in this issue. We see quite plainly on page yeah. 175 that that he's been replaced by the chameleon. It's also something, we get a little editorial box here, that that story is being told in Web of Spider-Man and Spectacular Spider-Man. So... Uh, you know, we don't get to see that action taking place here. No, we don't. Yeah, it's definitely um, a subplot heavy book. Um, page 177. I mean, we, we had moments of kind of sexy MJ earlier in like 300, but like this feels like the more cheesecakey of them all. Yeah. Because it doesn't really need to be here. Like they could be sitting, watching on TV, hanging out on the couch, having the same conversation. It wouldn't really change the conversation. It, they just happened to decide to put it in the bedroom with her getting undressed. Yep, and I think that's also just part of the evolution of how comics are maturing and evolving at a time. Yeah, don't 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 love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it makes it hard for uh, for you to share this with your eight year olds. A little bit, yeah. you might ask some questions like, "What what's going on here?" I'm like, <laughs> "I don't know, kid. I don't know why this is happening." Just getting dressed. Normal people get dressed, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's how I get dressed all the time. That's how <laughs> in a dimly lit room, you know, like like this, absolutely. 
great splash page at the end here with with the scorpion and spider-man holding up a wall in the background i just love this composition and you can see how crazy this tail is and i was talking about how eric larson does the the, the doc ock tentacles like that's what we're that's what we're dealing with right here <laughs> absolutely yeah i do sorry are we going to comment at all on uh, peter's interesting wardrobe in page 179 uh okay sure yeah let's do that <laughs> <laughs> just I, I I just some some of these artists they they make a very specific design choices on terms of what characters are wearing and I was just like why is he wearing this what is this well, this is the nineties and that's actually fairly indicative of the nineties you know the I guess white... and technically we're in eighty nine we're not even in the nineties yet well still even still this is <laughs> you, you you pull out a Sears catalog from this era and you'll get you'll get that look for sure true it's funny <laughs> if you t if you took the the black bars at the top of it it would almost look like a wolverine costume like a half half put together wolverine costume <laughs> yeah um i do I, I do think it's interesting again we see a, a little bit more of harry osborne and the goblin you know and the goblin but i feel like that doesn't end up going anywhere here that goes somewhere in web well we're going to see them in the next issue as well because they're going to move into a new apartment uh, mm. in in the next issue so something is happening but uh yeah, I'm not exactly sure. I can't remember if it's going to be pay off in this book or in one of the others. They all kind of start to blend together. What do you think of that, that last page, uh, you know, where it's like someone dies? Like there's a lot of like stuff that Scorpion's screaming as he's like threatening this guy. It's a, it's a pretty imposing image. But again, as you mentioned, um, the tail doing a very, you know, Eric Larson-y uh, Doc Ock uh, arm thing where it's like super long. It's going all over the place and really being quite threatening. And then you have the, you know, the end of it about to kill this guard. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great. And I think uh, McFarlane is just really good with his splash pages. For sure. Uh, we have now the final issue we're going to talk about today. This is Amazing Spider-Man number 319. It's called The Scorpion's Tale of Woe. As that the next issue starts the kind of bi-weekly shipping. Right. So we start getting, you know, more and more, which makes sense because we're about to move into, you know, kind of a storyline that's part of this, which is the Assassination Nation. Uh, but this is where we start the now on sale twice a month uh, kind of uh, movements in terms of how many books they're going to be pumping out there. Right. Okay, so in this story, we have uh, Peter Parker trying to cater to the scorpion so that he doesn't hurt the hostage. And he's delivering a pizza at the beginning. I love that. It's just a little bit of humor <laughs> to start our issue off. Um, but Justin Hammer is sending a couple of his recruits to stop the scorpion because the scorpion isn't doing what he wanted him to do. He was supposed to bring back the general, but the scorpion is saying, I will trade this general for J. Jonah Jameson. And Hammer is like, uh-uh, that's not going to work. So if you go to page 196, it's the big screen of all of these villains that are under yes. Justin Hammer's employ. What a great snapshot of of uh, B-list characters of this era. <laughs> you're being you're being nice, even calling them B-list. <laughs> C C-list boomerang. Yeah. What watch wizard? I mean, I don't know what you think that guy is or stiletto. Like these guys, man killer. They can be yeah yeah okay, killer okay. Uh, man killer at least I'll, I'll give her some some uh, respect i mean there's a i've seen a few man killers that they've used i like them leapfrog i like beetle rhino constrictor that's all fine the watch wizard the buzzard no thank you uh blacklash you know he's in and around here and there force is a very 80s character uh porcupine <laughs> less said the better and then we got you know nick spencer's favorite boomerang so right yeah actually boomerangs redeemed himself in late lately in these years um that stuff when he's the roommate is <laughs> really great absolutely 
Like he's given a lot more respect. That's for sure. Yeah, but you're right. All of these guys, like they're they're fine characters and they're fun. But yeah, I was being too nice calling them B list. I guess wasn't I? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you you can be as nice as you want, it's your show. Yeah. Okay, so this is a there's a big fight at the end of this issue where it's um where it's backlash and Rhino versus Scorpion and like Spider Man's there. But he's like, I think I'm not going to get involved in this. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really great because it's like they're all there for a reason and they all have a purpose and the action flow is really nice and it's it's exciting. And Spider-Man just doesn't know what to do with himself. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Um, meanwhile, we do have some more subplots. Like, like I mentioned, Harry Osborn is moving his family to Soho to be closer to his uh, his his work and uh, and then you know he's moving all of his father's stuff around and so Liz sees a green goblin mask in a box but Harry just tries to brush it off but we think there's something else going on there for sure uh, and then Mary Jane of, of course is going clubbing as well and she finds out the secret as to why everybody is is canceling her all of her photo shoots and modeling assignments it's because Jonathan Caesar is threatening them all which I mean feels like a pretty obvious yes. uh, thing to have happened. Yeah. Um, that shot of MJ on uh, page one ninety eight. I feel like oh, I feel like it was either there was a couple of books I remember reading when I was a kid, just kind of getting into comics. I think one of them was called uh, Five Fabulous Decades of Marvel by Les Daniels. Yeah. And I think either either this shot was in that particular book, and that's where I first, first kind of saw it, or it would have been in um, I think one by Peter Sanderson, just called Marvel Universe or something similar. Right. Um, and I remember those books being really important when I was a kid, kind of learning about the marvel universe and you know the the company and the characters and i remember this was always kind of featured prominently which you know is is questionable <laughs> yeah well i mean there aren't very many uh you know just great splash pages with mary jane in them you get lots of great ones of spider-man but uh, if you're going to pull artwork for for one of your books without having to commission something new like this is probably as good as it gets and it's a fine picture i mean it's very revealing top and and, and everything for one of those books perhaps but it's hard to draw people dancing to just show mm. a static image of someone in the middle of dancing and i think todd mcfarland has uh, pulled it off pretty well here yeah i mean i think you're i think i don't think you're wrong <laughs> It's just, it's just very suggestive, that's all. Oh, yes, for sure. But that's, uh, yeah, that's where Mary Jane is at the moment. Very suggestive. <laughs> yes, that is where she is. I love here because um, J. Jonah Jameson has been taken over by Chameleon. He's refusing to play ball. And he's just like, no, I'm not trading myself in because the Chameleon's like, I'm not getting myself in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's fun but then there's one comment that peter makes and he says okay so the, the 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 guy from the army says now he wants to trade musgrave for his old enemy j jonah jameson trouble is we've contacted jameson and he refuses to cooperate and spider-man thinks to himself jonah's a grouch but he's not a coward this isn't like him and i feel mm. like that is a completely false statement jonah, i think you think you're right jonah is always a coward he's always just looking up for himself and trying to avoid trouble and, and getting hurt and all that kind of stuff so that I feel like wasn't wasn't a really good comment from Spider-Man there I think you're right yeah uh, I also even though I really like the last battle with all of these guys I wasn't really sold on the ending of this either it's like just in the end uh, Scorpion gets knocked out and they take him away and then all, everything's fine and yeah just, everything's fine suddenly just like the no last one deal. I feel like these these last couple of issues they build and build and build and then 
the st- the stop is so sudden that it's like oh man it's a little a little jarring here yeah just like that issue with with venom right like yeah. it just kind of ends and exactly. then you're just kind of like oh I, I guess we're done now yeah on to the next thing and like the the next thing oh at least in this volume is is quite the next thing you got <laughs> an atlantis attacks crossover um which i mean until i got this epic i don't think i'd ever read that chapter i knew the the cover more than anything because i remember seeing it somewhere else but and then you have assassination nation so yeah we, we we've got a lot coming up and then we got parallel lives like um <laughs> so many disparate styles that we're going to get in the back half of this book but we don't have time for that today so we're going to leave that right here and we will uh, save those other stories for the next episode excellent yeah so any closing comments you want to make about the first half of this book um no i i don't think so it's nice to see mcfarlane get to really kind of cut loose with some classic villains we got the lizard we got the goblins we got scorpion so uh and obviously we have his own creation venom so uh you know it's it's got a pretty good lineup of, of villains that spider-man goes up against um from a purely you know kind of pin-up art standpoint there's a lot of good stuff but as you mentioned there's some surprisingly good storytelling that's still been to, uh to be seen as well some of it a little bit quieter than you might expect from someone like McFarland, who's made his bones as kind of a the bigger, flashier um, artist. But uh, yeah, no, I think generally speaking, it's a it's an enjoyable read for the most part. It does at time show its age. Yep. Um, I'm excited for us to do the second part and see if um, our, our enthusiasm gets tempered. But uh, okay. yeah, no, this was this was enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with with your statements there. Yeah. Yeah, well, thanks, Adam, for joining me again for another run through a bunch of issues of Spider-Man. And we will we'll be back next time to uh, to tackle the last half of this book. Do you, do you want to tell anybody about uh, your podcast? Sure, yeah. So the Comic Shenanigans podcast is uh, the podcast that I've hosted since 2012. Um, we're coming up on our 10-year anniversary in August. And the plan is that the show might be ending with its 1,000th episode. I'm, I'm kind of waffling back and forth. I might just go through <laughs> a major your format change because uh, I've been doing two episodes a week for almost 10 years and it's not something I can really do anymore and it's uh, it's a little exhausting and even though you know the, um, every other episode is a pretty short reviews episode it's just not something I really want to force myself to do anymore so yeah. at some point uh, either it's going to end or it's going to have a major format change but I can say that um, you know we're still hoping to get some more creators on as the show winds up I just had Kelly Thompson on to talk about her work on uh, Miss Marvel on uh, It's Jeff from the Marvel Infinity app uh, um, so there's a lot of good stuff. So uh, you should go check out the Comic Shenanigans podcast. Even if by the time you get to this episode, the show is over. There is so many good uh, interviews to go back and listen to uh, throughout the years. Uh, I had a great time doing a lot of really in-depth creator interviews. So even if the show itself is not publishing new episodes by the time you get to this, um, you can at least enjoy some great interviews that are hopefully still online. That's right. 10 years worth of content. It's just Oof, it's incredible, a Adam. Incredible. A thousand episodes. I just, I just don't even understand how you did it <laughs> wonderful okay well thank you everybody for listening again check us out on facebook instagram twitter and sign up for uh to or join my facebook group where we talk about epic collections all day just search for epic collections on facebook and uh yeah thanks everybody for listening and we'll see you next time Bye bye